Hi everyone, welcome to season two of Belongings. I'm so grateful and happy that you're joining us for another season of conversations with inspiring, creative people as we discuss home, belonging, identity, and more. I've learned so much from our guests this season and I hope you will also find these conversations as rich and meaningful as I did. Thank you again for supporting the podcast, for being here with us, and for supporting Kerem Foundation. I really appreciate you being here and I really hope you enjoy this season. Welcome again to Belongings. On today's episode, I'm so excited to share this conversation I had with this incredible human being, award-winning, Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker and director, Orlando von Einzadel. He is just so amazing at his work. He's directed The White Helmets, many other films. We get into his ideas about belonging, home, how it's like to actually create these documentary films in conflict zones and war zones in difficult areas and really embrace the art of storytelling. Please enjoy today's episode. Hi, Orlando. Welcome to Belongings. Hi, Lena. It's lovely to be here to talk to you. We're excited to have you here as well. Everybody listening, Orlando is a close friend of ours, a close friend of Kerem and of Syria. And we're going to be talking about his incredible films and his work and storytelling and his ideas around belonging and home. I'm going to start by Introducing Orlando with a very short biography that does not cover his extensive work, but we'll try to give it justice. Orlando von Einzadel is the co-founder of the London-based TV and film production company Grain Media. His award-winning films cover the globe from Africa, Asia, the Americas, and the Arctic, featuring all manners of stories from a skateboard school in Afghanistan, Skatistan, to live in Skate Kabul, to the tracking and arrests of pirates in West Africa. In 2014, Orlando debuted a feature-length documentary, Veranga, executively produced by Leonardo DiCaprio, which won 40 international awards. He has been nominated for an Academy Award, a BAFTA, a Director's Guild of America Award, and many others. In 2016, Orlando directed the short documentary film, The White Helmets, which followed the Syrian civil defense, a group of volunteer rescue workers saving lives in the midst of a brutal war. The film won Best Documentary Short at the 89th Academy Awards in 2017. It was also Netflix's first Oscar. In 2018, Orlando directed the documentary film Evelyn, which is a story about personal loss and grief. In 2021, he co-directed the documentary Convergence, Courage Under Crisis, with another friend of this podcast, Hassan Aqad. The film followed the everyday heroes of the pandemic across the world. Most recently, Orlando produced The Walk, a documentary about little Amal, the 11-year-old Syrian refugee girl from Aleppo, embodied in a 12-foot puppet walking across the world in search of her mother. We will be talking about this exciting film that Karam is involved in as well. Welcome, Orlando, again. Hello. Thank you for having me. My first question to you is, could you tell us a little bit about what belonging means to you? For me, I suppose belonging is about being somewhere where you feel safe, you feel happy, you feel loved. Amazing. And, you know, that is very connected to your work in that a lot of times you are working in unsafe places and watching people feeling unsafe. We want to talk a little bit about that when we talk about the White Helmets and the other works that you've done. But before we get into that, we will go into our traditional belongings question, which is to ask you to draw a map of home. And this is something we ask every guest. You can use a paper and pen, and it could be a map of home in the past, home in the present, home in the future, and in any kind of style you'd like. And then you'll tell us a story about your drawing. Do you know, um, it's quite funny doing this. I mean, I, I just found I, I got quite emotional even drawing it. And, um, well, I'm going to show you my picture. I mean, as a piece of drawing, it's, it is a, <laughs> as an illustrator, it's terrible. But... It just very, very, very simple. So that looks like a child's sketch. But I think the reason I got emotional is because it's a house. I suppose it's in my head, it's my house. And there's two people in the windows. And one is my partner, Esme, who I know, um, Esme Peach, who I know you guys know. And the other is my son. And I think, 
I probably right now, I probably feel more at home than, than I've ever felt in my life. And I travel quite a lot with work. And it's really funny having a son. My son's five years old. His name's Zeki. And when I come home now, I have the sort of almost like the best welcome I've ever had in my life. There is somebody whose love is completely unconditional. He misses me. He tells me he misses me. And so when I think about home, it's something that is just brings enormous joy to me, to happiness. I feel safe. I don't know if my drawing does any justice yes. to that, but that's, those are the emotions that elicits in me. And that's really beautiful. I mean, I remember when your son was born and I can't believe he's five already. That's crazy. Time flies so fast. I love that story. And is it's not really connected to a place or is it? No, for me, home isn't the place. For me, home is, frankly, it's the people, it's being with the people you love. It's being with the people yeah. that mean something to you. That I could be anywhere. And as long as I've got that, that is home. That's very clear to me. I, yes, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to live in a house with a roof on a street. And that's, you know, that's very comfortable. But that's not what home is. Home is those who I care about. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it really is connected with a lot of times when we do these kinds of drawings and exercises, especially with refugee kids. A lot of people pinpoint that home is the people, it's the relationships, it's the connection, and it's very beautiful. And I think, yeah. you know, your work really talks about that. I think because you spend so much time with people that have been displaced or are facing unsafe conditions that you probably see that even more having that stability in your own life. I mean, Lena, I recognize how lucky I am to live in a place like London where there is stability. And you're right. You know, I, I spent a lot of my life in places where there is instability. And the idea of four walls and a roof is not something to take for granted. I've grown up believing that I will always have that. I don't have that sort of uncertainty in my life that thinking that tomorrow my home might not be there or I might be forced from my home. And I'm, I'm very lucky for that. You started as a professional snowboarder and you started to make films about snowboarding. I know that there is a very direct connection between, you know, the adventure and seeking, you know, the kinds of thrills that you have in physical sports or other kinds of activities and storytelling. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that connection between adventure and storytelling in the way that you perceive it. Well, I, funnily enough, you're right. I, I was a professional snowboarder. I, I actually, I learned the craft of filmmaking via, <laughs> via being a snowboarder. You, you know, you used to get sponsored and every time you're in a video or a magazine, you got a little bit of extra money. And it sort of created this incentive for me and all my friends at the time to learn how to film each other and, and make, make videos, you know, and, and take photographs, obviously. So I, I learned the craft of filmmaking via making snowboard films, but I studied social anthropology at university. I always wanted to tell stories about things I believed were important about, you know, subject matters bigger than, than a ski resort. And that sort of led me to telling documentary stories about, you know, parts of the world that were very different to my own. For a long time, I did quite gritty journalistic investigations. I worked for Al Jazeera English for a long time. And while making those films, Lena, I, they were often quite, the subject matter was often very dark. It was, there'd be some deep injustice somewhere in the world. And, you know, we'd investigate that. We'd you'd try and expose that injustice. While making those films, I'd often come across stories that I found, they were positive. They were hopeful. They were from parts of the world where I'd only read and was, you know, hearing really deeply depressing news, uh, very stereotypical. And I always wondered, I'd like to tell stories like that. They're the kind of stories I'm not hearing back home about people doing positive things in, yeah. in the Middle East, in, you know, in yeah. West Africa. And one day I, I came across a story about a, a skateboard school in, in Kabul. And it kind of brought, it brought these two worlds together. It brought, I was working in places like, like Kabul a lot. And here was, a, and it was about skateboarding, which was my roots in, in London. I was a skateboarder for a long time. And it was this story about a school that, it mostly provided education for street children and the, the sort of hook to get these kids into this school was they got to, they got a lesson, they got fed. They also got two hours in a skate park and boys and girls could just ride around, crash into each other and have loads of fun. And I, and I, it to me, it seemed like this amazing, amazingly positive story. And of course was a way to look at childhood in a place like Kabul in 2009. 
but through this kind of lens of sports and joy. Mm-hmm. And we had very little money. We had a, a few thousand dollars and we went out and filmed it and we, we put it on. There was no network involved. We just put it up on Vimeo. And within 24 hours, this short film went viral. And it, for me, it was a bit of a light bulb moment because I thought, you know what? Actually, other people are interested in, in films like this, in stories like this. And it sort of shaped that, I'd say for the next 10 years, that kind of shapes the direction of the, the stories that, that I was interested in and that I believed other people might be interested in too. Absolutely. Do you know about this? Uh, does this school still exist? What happened? Do you know anything about the people in that film, considering everything that's happened in the last few years in Afghanistan? Yeah, I do. So we always stayed in touch with... So we released... This film was called Skate to to Live in Skate Kabul, and it was released in 2010 at the Sundance Film Festival. And we stayed in touch. We stayed in close contact through the years with the school. You know, we'd help them on fundraising activities. And 10 years later, they got back in touch about an American TV network had asked them to make a film. And because we had such a great relationship, they said, look, we'd like you to help make this film with us. And we made that film with a different director called Carol Dysinger. And that film was called Learning to Skateboard in a War Zone, If You're a Girl. Wow. Which they, we were very fortunate and it went on to win the Oscar for short documentary that, that year. But I, I'd say all of that because I suppose this was an exercise in how, and I, I would say that we try very hard at the films we make. You know, you become very close to people. Films take a long time to make. You build very deep relationships. And it's, you know, mostly we, frankly, we become very close friends with the people we make films about. And if we've done our job right, Lena, I'd like to think that everybody involved in the films we make, or certainly the longer films we make, everybody feels like it's their film. It's not just the film director's film or the film producer's film. It's everybody's film. And so, yes, of course, when Afghanistan fell back into the hands of the Taliban, it was an incredibly difficult time for the Skaterstan oh. organization. And they had two different schools in Afghanistan, one in, one in Kabul and one in, in Mazar. And they've had to change how they operate, but there's still a presence in Afghanistan and they are continuing their work, not just in Afghanistan, but also across the world. They have schools in, in South Africa and, and Cambodia as well. That's really powerful. And I love how you're talking about, you know, the films that you make with the people that you make. I know that you care very deeply about these people and their stories, which is why you make these films, but it almost create their own kinds of communities themselves. And carrying that forward is really, really powerful. The next film I want to talk about is The White Helmets. And, you know, it's obviously a very powerful film, especially to Syrians, but really for everybody who watched it at the time, it really did shift the narrative that was really overwhelming in the world about what is actually happening in Syria. And you really brought these heroes to life in the documentary. I was just thinking about this earlier. It's been seven years since you made that film. And today, the White Helmets obviously still exist. I mean, we both know that it very well. We know the White Helmets. And every time when they speak, he talks about the fact that the idea that they still exist is such a shame because they should not exist as an organization that's still saving lives of people under airstrikes. And this is still happening today in northern Syria daily, even though it's not in the news and everybody really has forgotten about Syria. So I want to ask you first, how was it for you to make this film? What did it feel like? Why did you make it at the time? And then I want to talk about, you know, the White Helmets today. Well, I mean, I, I suppose. In short, Lena, making that film was really the honor of my life. And, you know, I, I remember very clearly how the film came about. We just released a film called Virunga, which you mentioned at the beginning. And Esme Peach, my partner, she was working with the Syria campaign. And I remember she showed me a clip of a baby being pulled out of the rubble in Aleppo. And I remember it was, it was the kind of clip which just you freeze in your tracks and you just sort of can't believe what you've just witnessed. And the man who, who rescued the baby was wearing a white helmet. And I remember saying, who is this team? And she said, oh, you know, the Syria Civil Defense, they go by the name of the white helmets. And I said, that they seem extraordinary. And I remember she said, there's already a film being made about them by HBO. You know, so don't, um, you know, so there, there's somebody working on a film about them. And I'm thinking, great, well, that's wonderful that there's hopefully somebody else can share their story. And I remember about a year later, I just asked her, I said, what's happened with that film? Because I'd obviously been reading about the White Helmets at some point. And she said, oh, that film fell through. 
And at which point I said, well, look, it, you know, I'd, I'd love to meet. I'd love to, you know, see if anyone's interested in, in us possibly sharing their story. And that led to a, a load of conversations with the leadership of Riad. And films like this, for an organization like the White Helmets, they are a distraction. You know, they are every day they're doing this life-saving work. And to accommodate the needs of a film team, that takes resources potentially away from what they're doing. So it was quite a drawn-out process to see if they felt it was worth their time to do this. And I completely understand that. And then, you know, eventually they decided, okay, it's worth our time to allow this team to come and spend some time with us. And at the time, it seemed the obvious choice was that we would go and spend a few weeks or a few months with them in Aleppo, which is, you know, the sort of the main area that they were operating in. And they said... You know, we've been talking for a few months at this point and they actually said, please don't come to Aleppo because there hasn't been any Western film teams here for several months because of the kidnap risk. And they said, if you come, we can't protect you. In fact, you might put us in danger. And of course, at that point, we said, well, obviously, we don't want to put you in any danger at all. And so the way we ended up doing the film, Lena, is we spent five weeks in Turkey on a training course for White Helmet volunteers and at the same time, we worked with Halid Khatib, one of the White Helmets, who documented a lot of their video and photography work. And we helped train him up to do documentary storytelling techniques. And so we, and then Halid went back into, into Syria, into Aleppo and carried on doing his normal work, but he also shared that material with us. And so the final film is that sort of combination of us spending time with them in Turkey in southern Turkey and and Khalid's material from Syria. And Khalid is such an incredibly talented human and still is. And for we mentioned Raid a couple of times. And so for everybody listening, Raid Saleh is the head of the White Helmets and has been head of the White Helmets for a very long time, holding that responsibility, even though we know he wishes he did not have this responsibility for so many years. You know, I remember when we watched the White Helmets, the film, obviously we knew all of the stories very, very closely. We probably knew a bunch of the footage that was shown, like the one that you mentioned, the Miracle Baby and all of these things. But then seeing that film, there's something about it, seeing the film elevated to the screens and then on streaming on TV and then obviously winning the Oscar. It's such a huge moment for Syrians to have that recognition and validation of what was happening in Syria because so much of it was being placed under doubt for so long. And I think that's the power of the film. And I totally understand when Ra'id was saying, you know, like when you were saying that it was a distraction, because I remember that as well, because a lot of the things that we were doing had such urgency because everybody believed that this was not going to be such a long war or a long battle or a long experience. And so everything was about being in the moment. But now when you look back, you know, films like The White Helmets, For Sema, so many films and books that have been produced because of during the conflict in Syria. Imagine if we didn't have all of that right now and everything is still going on, it would be a tragedy. Yeah. I mean, you know, Lena, you're right. It's, I mean, part of the reason all of these films have been made is the tragedy that this conflict has gone on for so long. But as, as you said, uh, you know, this sort of the main motivation for us to make it was to try and help with that narrative shift. Because mm-hmm. when we started filming, Russia had very recently got involved in the conflict and was pushing out all of this propaganda about to try and create a very simple narrative of this conflict that it was between a so-called elected government and you know, terrorists, which was obviously complete nonsense. So that we felt that telling the story of the White Helmets was a way to show that 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 narrative was just a complete fabrication by showing ordinary citizens and what they were doing. And then at the same time, we also had a sort of additional kind of agenda that we had as a filmmaking team, which was to try and dispel preconceptions about Syrians. And I always remember there was a moment where a podcast done in... Texas was brought to our attention. And it was a film podcast by two young American males who reviewed films, you know, and mostly they reviewed big sort of superhero movies. And they, our film, The White Helmets, was one of the films they were reviewing. And we were listening to it. And what was extraordinary, Lena, is they didn't even know how to pronounce Syria and they were pronouncing Syria wrong. So they, you know, they had very little understanding of what life might be like in a place like Syria. And they said, um, 
I'm trying to remember exactly what they said, but they basically said, we really enjoyed the film and it really showed that Syrians live just like us in America. And the heroes of the film are, are men with beards, men, you know, people that have been sort of portrayed as in very negative ways as the enemy for decades, it's, you know, especially in America. And we felt that was, was an enormous win, that the film could kind of work on these multiple levels. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And in your acceptance speech, when you ask everybody to stand, I had forgotten that until I watched it this morning. It's just extraordinary. So are you still connected with the White Helmets today? Are you in contact with them? I know, you know, for me, watching what they did after the earthquake was extraordinary as well. It's incredible to know. And also, in a way, for me, I still hold on to that belief. And I know that it holds it. It's almost like shameful, again, for the White Helmets to need to exist and need to have to do this work in this world but it is what it is. And they've had this experience and for watching after the earthquake hit Southern Turkey and Northern Syria, and it was very close to our work as well. I was amazed by the fact that the white helmets, because of their experience, were able to save so many lives after the earthquake with very little equipment, even more than what was happening in Turkey and definitely more than what was happening in the regime occupied areas in Syria. And they were still able to save so many lives just because of all of the work they've done. I mean, if it wasn't such a terrible situation in northern Syria, Lena, you know, one thing to celebrate is is the sort of the founding of this extraordinary organization with dedicated people that are there to fill the gaps of the state and save lives. We all obviously just wish the war would finish in a way that that worked for civilians in, you know, in places like Idlib and the White Helmets can can transform into something else, into a slightly different organization, because you know, they are you know, I say this carefully, but they they do in a lot of ways represent the best of people, you know, people that are willing to lay down their lives for yeah. for strangers, for people that, you know, that people you don't know. I'm very lucky. I've got to travel a lot with work and been to lots of different places. That's so rare. You know, that that's a very rare trait to find. And they are very unique in, in that way. Absolutely. I mean, we did see a glimmer of that during the pandemic when there was a pause in airstrikes for a while in northern Syria and the White Helmets kind of didn't really have much to do. And that was the rebirth of the new, new projects. They were working on, you know, civilian projects and, you know, repairing the roads and rebuilding schools and doing all these kinds of things and kind of reinventing what the White Helmets, the Syrian civil defense could actually be doing. And uh, unfortunately, that was all put in reverse later. Speaking of the pandemic and our friend Hassan, who was on this podcast and is also an extraordinary Syrian, you did a film together about the pandemic, Everyday Heroes as well. Like this is a theme throughout your work, finding the everyday heroes in the world. Could you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I mean, Hassan's a dear friend. And I suppose we've been looking for some, I mean, well, I, I can say from my point of view, I've been looking for something to do with him for a long time. And we started to make a film for Netflix about the response of ordinary people to this extraordinary situation. And I'd been watching Hassan, his social media and his work of volunteering in a hospital as a cleaner. And I remember we, we got in touch and we started to speak about that and we started to collaborate on this project. And, you know, he's, he's extraordinarily brave. You know, he's done many things that are very well documented from you know, the journey across Europe, which he documented in the series Exodus, and then his social activism work here, and, you know, standing up for injustice is extraordinary. And then, you know, putting his life on the line to clean hospitals in his local hospital in East London. And this is at a time where COVID was, was still that very mysterious thing that, you know, everybody thought it was going to, I mean, it, obviously it did kill millions and millions of people, but this was a time where it, it felt that, you know, whether or not you were ill or healthy, you were still at extraordinary risk. And Hassan did what he does best, sort of put himself out there because he's an incredibly empathetic human being. Absolutely. And the film is called Convergence, Courage Under Crisis, if anybody would like to see it. I remember watching it and it was incredible. And then you also, you know, highlight these people around the world that were doing extraordinary things at the beginning of the pandemic. Again, the documentation of a time that right now it's very fuzzy for all of us when we think about the pandemic years. And it's sometimes hard to even imagine that we even all went through that. And again, you know, marking that time and that sacrifice that so many people did for everybody else. You know, 
I often find there's a tension in the work that I suppose I do or we, we do as a film team. I, I often talk in the we because films take a village. There's lots of people yes. involved. And it's often that tension between being really political about a particular issue or trying to be more to create a piece of filmmaking that really is about an empathy bridge between people. And I suppose our film was about sort of showing a lot of the shared problems that people mm -hmm. all around the world were, were dealing with and these same yeah. patterns that started to emerge about injustice because I think the pandemic really mm -hmm. ended up, you know, general life, a lot of those cracks in our social systems can kind of be papered over to some degree yeah. and the pandemic really widened those cracks. And that was evident everywhere from, you know, everywhere we started to make this film from the UK to China to India. I mean, I think that's really interesting because, and that was also a very short-lived period of time that we all felt, you know, the whole, we're all in this together and we can only get through this if we all, you know, collaborate and cooperate. Those very, you know, first th few months of the pandemic, they were very, very scary, but, and they were actually very magical in that way where, and now I'm thinking about it from your perspective is that you're, you're going to these places like Syria or when you're doing Afghanistan and you're bringing a picture of a world that is very alien to the rest of the world to tell them, okay, look and see what's happening here. But then now we're in a situation where this is happening everywhere. But even that was short-lived because the cracks came back in a big way and the divisions came back and it, it became very political, very fast. How do you navigate this, like the line of politics? I mean, obviously there's a very fine line in every single piece of work that you're doing between the politics and the media narrative that you're actually exposing that there's another side of a story or exposing the human stories. And there is a risk there. I mean, we obviously saw it in Syria. We're seeing it right now. We're seeing what's going on in the world and what kinds of stories people are taking as like the correct side or the truth. How do you actually navigate that political side because you want to also deliver a human story that everybody can relate to? Do you know, it's, it's a very good question, Lena. I think the sort of, my gut instinct has always been to tackle the big politics, but through a very small story. It's ultimately, it's about showing somebody's humanity because that is something we all share. And, you know, yes, the films we tackle, they might deal with these very big subject matter. But if we tell and tell that story through a family, it's a way that everybody can relate to the story, no matter where that family might be. And actually the bigger politics get woven into how that family live their everyday existence. And you don't need to then potentially have a voiceover which explains the politics to you because you just see it playing out in real life in a way which everybody can understand. And so the film can actually be very political without overtly saying, hey, I'm a really political film. And that tends to have been the way that we've made films and tried to tell stories. And I think it feels comfortable because, you know, Everyday life is political, whether we like it or not. Absolutely. That's so true. There are so many pieces made about Syria or pieces of writing about Syria. And I see it all the time in different conflicts as well, where it's very easy to go into the passive voice. And that's for us, it was always outrageous. And The White Helmets is a very specific film because of the subject matter that, yes, you didn't have to explain things to people and it didn't have to say like I'm a political film, but it was very clear that what was actually happening. And I think a lot of Syrians get upset about pieces of work that were not that clear. Or even when you talk about the refugee crisis, we saw this a lot, that it becomes very easy to say, oh, all of these people are displaced, but nobody ever wanted to say why they were displaced. I think The White Helmets and For Summer and other films were very courageous in that they were very clear on what was happening. And at the same time, you can then sit and take in the human story. But there was no ambiguity about, you know, why this was happening or who was committing what. And that's, I think, where that defining line becomes really important. Do you know, Lena, you're 100% right. And I, I was simplifying. I, I, so I suppose the films we make, yes, building that empathy bridge is really important. But actually, we always say to ourselves, you have to go way beyond empathy. Yes, you need empathy to make people care, not just about the people in the film, but the issue that maybe underlies it. But you have to go beyond that. You have to show, frankly, the roots of the crisis that the individuals are, are tackling. And how you do that, we try to be subtle and we try to do that through mm -hmm. following like everyday life without necessarily mm -hmm. a voiceover that points it all out. Yeah. But a hundred percent, you have to show 
the situation. You have to explain the socio-economic backdrop to that situation. Otherwise, like you said, it's the context is meaningless. So I, you know, I, so yes, I say we try and tell it simply, but of course that stuff is buried in there and, and woven throughout the thread of any, any story that we try to tell. Absolutely. And I think that's where really the bravery comes in that people sometimes don't recognize and, you know, why certain stories or certain films, like they resonate with other people so much. So I wanted to ask, you know, it kind of connects to what we talked about earlier when you drew your map of home and your house and you travel a lot for work. You're going to all these different places. You're telling these very difficult stories. It's a difficult process of making a film. And a lot of the work that you do does connect with people that have lost their homes or are in a conflict zone, in a war zone, um, are going through extraordinary circumstances. How are you able to process those stories in your own life? Because this is something I know a lot of people struggle in, you know, not just filmmakers, but in the activist world of dealing with a lot of this stuff and then having to process it in our normal lives. Well, the short answer is I've got a lot better at it, Lena. <laughs> I actually found it very difficult. And I sort of had the, I suppose, where I found it the most difficult was, was making a film called Furunga, where I lived in Eastern Congo for, on and off over two years. And I lived in a, in a tent in a, in a sort of the, a hilltop in a forest. Um, and while making this film, there was a very, this sort of the simmering conflict that had been going on for 20 years in Eastern Congo stopped simmering and became very violent again. And I'd often spend four weeks there and then I'd fly home with the footage and try and fundraise for the film. And when I came home, I found it incredibly difficult to, you know, you land on the plane and suddenly you go to a coffee shop and buy, buy a, a lovely cappuccino. And I, I found that, that sort of cognitive switch very difficult. And then a month later, I'll be back in, in Eastern Congo and I do exactly the same thing again. The reason I found it so difficult is I just didn't talk about it because I found it very difficult to talk about it with the housemates I was living with because it was so different from everybody else's realities. Actually, that's a terrible way of, of dealing with it. And it's actually much better just to talk about it. And that allows you to emotionally unburden yourself from what you've experienced. And, you know, that's become easier, A, because I've got better and I understand these issues and what you do need to do. And as a film team, actually, we're much more aware of that sort of secondary trauma of documenting trauma, or even in the, as an editor, you never leave an edit suite, but you're watching it day in, day out on the screen. And we're much better at recognizing that and being careful about how we deal with certain types of footage or, or subject matter. And we, we do talk. And in my life today, I, I, when I do come back from a difficult trip, I, I talk to my partner and she works in, in this, she's not a filmmaker, but she works in, in this space on these types of issues. And so she's, she's got a better understanding of it and, and I can engage with her and she, she gets it. Yeah, it's definitely a process. We all had to learn how to do it. And I think we can, we'll have to continue to learn because it's impossible to stay in this long term without those kinds of tools. A hundred percent. I mean, I also recognize I, you know, I, I don't have to deal with this as, as anywhere near as much as somebody that's actually fled war. I, I always, I'm always in a privileged position yes. as a, I can choose to fly in and fly yeah. out again. I have that. I have that luxury. I, I often found that actually making, making Virunga. When I did have those moments and I would speak to the rangers of this national park where I was making this film and it was always very clear to me, I could leave, they couldn't. And they'd often, they'd say to me, come on, come on, Orlando, pull yourself together. Um, so. Yeah, I definitely know how that, what that feels like. Cause yeah. you know, it's, it's very similar, you know, you all, in a way, obviously complete privilege to have, you know, I've witnessed the war from afar and my family's all safe. They were able to leave. All of these things we're very aware of. And at the same time, it's that feeling of that, that you have that responsibility and it continues. It's not a light thing to do. And you do have to have those kinds of tools in place. You do. I mean, I, I had a brother who died and he, he took his own life and this was sort of 16 years ago now. And I, I never spoke about it. And in some ways that that sort of the pain of that situation affected actually how I ever, how I always, I didn't talk about my emotions. I thought showing emotional vulnerability was a sign of weakness. And I made a film six or seven years ago now about my brother and about 
frankly, dealing with grief. And actually, in making that film, <laughs> I've become a much more, it's, a, it's every day is a, is a journey, but I've become much better at, at talking emotionally and about showing emotional vulnerability and realizing it isn't a sign of weakness. Actually, it's a sign of strength. If you can be emotionally vulnerable and open and talk about things that are challenging you emotionally, it's much better for you. It's better for the people around you. It's better for them to help you deal with things differently. And so, yes, when I, when I say I'm better as it now, it's these different things that have happened in my life that have led to a point of being better equipped to deal with challenging situations. What's the name of that film? It's called Evelyn. So his na- my brother's name was Evelyn. And we called the film Evelyn because actually the weird thing is I, I couldn't say his name, Lena, for, at the time for 12 years. I basically went pretty much 12 years without being able to say my brother's name. The film's on Netflix and it's a very different film to White Helmets, obviously. Well, I'm sorry about that experience and I definitely will look for that film. It's an important subject matter for anybody who's dealing with loss. I mean, we all deal with loss in different forms. Thank Uh, you for sharing that. No, thank you. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what was interesting, just one thing about talking about difficult things. When we were making the film, we did this walk from Scotland back down to London and there was a camera following. I was with my family and we we basically were walking in places where my brother, where we'd walked with my brother when he was alive. It was sort of this journey. And there was a camera following us and we'd see people, you know, we'd walk past people and they'd say, oh, they'd look at the camera. What, what are you doing? And then I remember at the beginning, I was very nervous to say what we were doing because that would mean having to have a conversation about my brother. But as we, as we got better at it, we'd, we'd start to say, well, you know, we're making a film in memory of our brother. And it was extraordinary that if you show emotional vulnerability, it's almost contagious. And suddenly complete strangers would open up about not necessarily about mental illness or suicide, but about things of grief and loss in their own lives. And some of the best bits in the film, actually, are these conversations of complete strangers about something very intimate and personal, where the conversation has gone from naught to 100 miles an hour in about 30 seconds. And that's always stayed with me. And I really, I, I champion, no matter how uncomfortable it can be, having difficult conversations, because, you know, life closes us down real life. You know, we don't want to be vulnerable and you don't need it every day, but occasionally just having a very open conversation can be really, it can release an enormous amount of weight that might be both. It's incredible. It's so true. I've seen that happen really significant ways when we work with refugee communities. I remember one specific time at Karam House in Raihanle and we actually because I've done this mapping exercise. I've been doing it with kids in camps since 2012. It's just something, you know, I just bring out like my architecture side, which I do not practice in any way and have the kids, you know, the idea was to teach them how to draw a floor plan. And that was where this mapping home idea came from. I actually started it even earlier than that as a part of my thesis and I was asking people to map parts of Aleppo while we were in Aleppo. And it was insane because I'd ask people to draw this very specific square in Aleppo and it's down the street from where we were. But then my grandmother would draw it in 1928 and everybody who was my parents' age would draw it specifically in 1958 when Abdel Nasser came and gave this speech. And my brother, anybody my age and younger would just draw it as a like, like a place where you just go from one place to the other because, you know, under the regime in Syria, there's no such thing as open public space for a square to be used as a square. But I was just asking them to draw the square and they would just draw it in these random times. And and that's where this whole idea of mapping came from. But one time when we were at Karam House and our team in Karam House are mostly, almost all of them are Syrian refugees. And these people have worked together for years and I've known them for years. And then we were doing a team building exercise and it came to my portion. And I said, okay, let's do this mapping exercise. And people drew their homes and they got up and spoke about them. And it was a couple of hours of an exercise of about 20 people. And everybody learned these 
really deep details that we had never known about the people that we're actually working with that came through in this exercise of, you know, just talking about your home and talking about your memory. And we learned so many painful things and joyful things and funny things about the people that we work with. Because even when you're with somebody every day in, day out, you just don't, there's so much that you just don't know. Yeah, 100%. That was a big tangent. (laughs) I liked it. So I want to talk about the walk. And I think, you know, here we can go back into joy. We can, you know, hope amidst the despair, you know, finding that joyful stories. We can talk a little bit about little Amal. You know, we were at in Gaziantep when little Amal launched. I was there. It was extremely powerful. One of really emotional for me because this puppet for everybody who doesn't know little Amal is a puppet that's uh, 12 feet long, uh, tall, three meters tall. And she represents a 10 year old girl who is from Aleppo and wakes up in the midst of the war and the destruction. And she's lost her mother and she starts walking from supposedly Syria, but it was in Turkey all the way. She walks to Manchester in that first walk that happened in 2021. And Kerem was part of this and the Kerem House kids came. This was actually, you know, in the midst of the pandemic. So it was the first time a lot of these kids took a field trip and came to kind of guide Amal out of the very narrow streets of Gaziantep to the Citadel where everybody sang. And then she took a suitcase that the kids had made and then she begins her walk. Since then, Amal has walked in New York and now she's walking across America, which I was able to see her in Chicago. And we also were able to see her in Montgomery, Alabama, by coincidence with our entire Borden team, which is also very meaningful. And so she's just become this larger than life personality and bringing together people to talk about the welcoming of refugees. And so there's a film now that is, uh, by the time this podcast comes out, it will be out in the world. It's going to be premiere soon. And you are a producer of it. So could you tell us a little bit about this film that is about little Amal? Thank you. Yes, I'd be very happy to tell you about this film, which I'm very excited about. And this was a real privilege to work on on this film. It's directed by Tamara Katevska, who her previous feature documentary was called Honeyland, which did did wonderful things and it got nominated for two Oscars. And Tamara's an incredibly creative and brilliant filmmaker. And I suppose Tamara could have just followed a kind of behind the scenes of this extraordinary theatre production of Amal as Amal walked across Europe. But what she's done is she's actually done something more creative. She's brought Amal to life and she's given Amal a voice. And that's the voice of a seal, a real Syrian refugee. And she sort of made the Amal puppet part of Asil's imagination. And so the film, I suppose, I mean, I don't want to put words in tomorrow's mouth, but I think I see it, it's like a fairy tale for adults in some ways. And it's sort of magical, real, it's documentary, and it's kind of an extraordinary road trip. And it's about human connection and human misunderstanding. And it's also a sort of a, a beacon to say, you know, there are tens, hundreds of thousands of unaccompanied child refugees across the world, and we mustn't forget about them. Absolutely. And so exciting for us because Asil is one of the children in our programs and we've known her family for a long time. And so when Tamara came to us and asked to see if there was a a girl in our programs that looked like Amal and they found Asil and she does look so much like Amal, which is so, so amazing to watch. And Asil and her family, she has four sisters and she lives with her uncle and her grandmother. And her story is so close to little Amal's, just like so many of the kids that we work with, their stories of separated families and families that are going through extreme circumstances and the displacement and living in a foreign country. I just loved watching Asil channel that creativity and that positivity and into the film. And she was very, very proud of her performance. I met her when I was in Rehanle uh, just in September, and we're going to include her interview in this episode. And she's just very, very proud. And she wants to be an actress. She told me <laughs> when I asked her to, do, to map the home for this, for this episode, she mapped a future home. And I'll tell you, the future home is in Dubai. <laughs> it has a swimming pool and a red Mercedes. And she lives in that house with her grandmother. Amazing. I mean, Lena, that's, that's, 
that's wonderful to hear. I mean, it's, a seal is, is a, she was a superstar. She's, she seals the show. I mean, Amal herself is, is obviously very impressive, but I, you know, that the heart of the film is sort of divided between Amal and a seal. And ideally, in, when you watch the film, you know, the belief is that the two are completely interconnected. And I know Tamara and the team loved working with a seal. And she has, I mean, it's strange to say, she has star quality. She's, uh, she, she's wonderful. Yeah, she said, I want to be an actress. This is my dream. And it's really funny because I'm usually never speechless around the kids. I'm the one who's like, what do you want to be? And what do you want to do? And where do you want to go? And then I'm watching her. I'm like, I don't really know what to say to this because it's like I've never actually seen it so clearly. And I was like, this is amazing. And we were able to, we had a short clip of the film and she watched it. We watched her watching it. And you could just see in her eyes that she just couldn't believe seeing herself in, on the screen. And we're looking forward to having a screening of The Walk in Turkey, hopefully at Kerem House and inviting everybody to watch it. Everybody's very proud. It features also a few other people from our team. And it has all of her family and her sisters. And her older sister, Shayma, I want to mention, is the woman, she's a young lady who actually took care of the four sisters throughout this very extreme circumstance that they've lived through in the past years. And now she is actually, she was one of our graduates this year from Kerem House, and she's going to study business administration, and she's going to college and university far from where they live. And she said, you know, my next sister is taking the responsibility, and I'm going to be able to live my life as a college student. And so we're so happy for her as well. Oh, that's wonderful. I feel like I should take this opportunity, Lena, just to say how wonderful it was to work with Karam on this project and your team. And, you know, for us, it's sort of a dream partnership to work with an organization that does such, such extraordinary work and to help make this film possible. Um, so thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You know, we've been very closely involved with the walk since it started. And I always used to tell people we work with the real life Amals. And now in the film, it, like it really is. So it's a full circle and we're very excited to see the film and share it. So where can people see this film and when will people be able to see it? So a film like this typically starts its life on the film festival circuit. And we've got our launch, our world premiere is in New York in early November at the Doc NYC Festival, which is, which is fantastic. And then after that, we're looking to take the film to Europe and, and other countries around the world. And then during that period, we will work to find a distributor who will release it more generally globally. And we're not sure what that, the plans are for that at the moment, but there will be plans soon and we will make sure that everybody knows about it. Yeah, we're very looking forward to it. And we will also share with everybody as soon as we have news of certain screenings and anytime we'll be, everybody will be able to see it. I love how you described it as a fairy tale for adults. That's a perfect uh, description of the film. So thank you so much, Orlando. I'm going to go into the rapid fire questions okay. to wrap up this conversation that I really thoroughly enjoyed. And I hope that you did as well. It was really inspiring. Oh, Lena, I've loved talking to you. I mean, I feel like I've rambled on, but, but it's been lovely to talk to you. It's wonderful. So my first question is, complete this sentence, home is where? Home is where you were surrounded by the people that you love and that love you. What's one piece of advice that you would give a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? So I can only answer that from my own perspective and as somebody who's very fortunate with their job to to spend time in in places quite frequently where I've never been before I find the best way to fit in is is to try and embrace where I am and talk to people talk to strangers and try and be open I think being you know I, I know for the circumstances between me on making a film and a young refugee turning up in a, in a new country are, ve are very different but I've always found if you are open with people and you talk to people and you try and embrace the place where you are and the people that surround you there, it's a quicker way to become accepted into that community and that space. So that, that would be my, my advice. That's wonderful advice. Give us a list of three unexpected places people must visit in your hometown. Well, so I'm from London. I live, I live in Southeast London. So I'm going to be very specific to where I live. 
And I, you know, me and my son, who's five years old, we've sort of discovered this love of cycling together where he sits in the back of my bicycle and we cycle. And because he's little and vulnerable, we have trying to avoid the roads. And we found this extraordinary route in London along the, the south side of the river. And you can cycle along it for hours and you get to see old London and old buildings that date back hundreds of years and modern London and new, you know, new buildings and new trendy places. And it's, it's extraordinary. And we just sit and talk as we do it. And, um, it's, I tell everybody who comes to London, walk along the south side of the river or cycle along the south side of the river. Beautiful. It's, it's completely free, obviously. So that's one. There's a park near me called Greenwich Park where time was invented. No, not, not really, but it's where, <laughs> it's where Greenwich Mean Time comes yeah. from. And there's an observatory there and it's on a hill. And I, in my mid forties, I've discovered running as a fitness thing recently. And I, I run to the top of this hill and I get a beautiful view of London, but also in, in the running, in doing exercise, I find it's an incredible way to, to clear my head. And as I've become more aware of this stuff for your own mental health to feel better Absolutely. about the world. You yeah. just, I find if I run to that top of that hill and look over London, I feel great no matter yeah. what is going on in the world. And it's very easy for the world to bring you down. You just turn on social media and you feel terrible. Absolutely. And then um, you go on the, the doom scroll. Exactly. Exactly, Lena. <laughs> and what's um, number three? My number three is there's an area pretty, which is basically next to where I grew up called Peckham. Traditionally, it's an area where immigrants from West Africa settled in, in London. And since then, over the years, it's, it's drew people from all over the world. And it's one of those areas which has enormous energy that it's become very trendy. It's full of artists. It's still got its, its West African roots. It's a great place. And uh, I would advise anybody coming to London to go to Peckham. That's beautiful. Now you're making us excited to come to London. <laughs> <laughs> what dish tastes like home to you? So I would say a kind of a, a sort of a chicken broth. And the reason I say that is it, it's traditionally, it's been something that if I was sick, that my mother would make, you know, to make us feel better. Um, it's something Esme, my partner, who's of Turkish heritage, she makes when we're ill. And I often give it to my son too. And it's sort of, if I walk into my house and somebody is cooking that, it immediately feels like home. It feels like yeah. a safety blanket. And, and Esme adds a, a Turkish element to it with lots and lots of lemon and parsley and it's delicious. I love that. I know the Turkish version because my yeah. grandmother used to make that too. So I can imagine exactly that smell. It smells like warmth. It does. Exactly. Lena. Yeah. So my final question is, if there's a certain book or books that you love and I've recommended to your friends the most, oh. you'd like to share with us. Okay. So I'm making a film at the moment. It's a love story. And it's a story ultimately about our shared humanity. It's about a man. It's a man from India and he met a Swedish woman. This is in the 1970s and he was a street artist. And one day she sat down and he painted her and they fell deeply, deeply in love. And she had to return home to Sweden for her studies. And they vowed, they vowed to be together again forever because they were, they were deeply in love. But sadly, her studies took over and gradually her ideas of going back to India started to disappear. And this man, his name was PK, he thought, well, the love of my life, she's going to disappear unless I do something radical. And he sold all of his property and what he could afford at the end. He couldn't afford a plane ticket, but he could afford a bicycle. And one day he set off and over the next four months, he cycles across the world. He cycled through Afghanistan, through Iran, through Turkey. Wow. And eventually turned up in Sweden. And Lossa, the Swedish lady, she knew he was coming. He didn't just turn up unannounced. Mm -hmm. But anyway, four months later, he knocks on her door and they embrace and they've been together ever since. And it's the most extraordinary story. And I know about this story because I met his children one day and they handed me his book and it's called The Amazing Story of the Man Who Cycled from India to Sweden for Love. Um, wow. And I would recommend it. You know, it's about, it's about all of the things that all of the positive traits about human beings, about love, about forgiveness, about risking everything for a dream. And, um, and that, that's the book I'm telling everyone to read at the moment. So you're making this film right now? I am, yes. I'm in the middle of doing it. And it, it's a very positive film to be making. And, it sounds beautiful. Uh, 
Yeah, I will. You know, at the moment, Lena, especially with what's happening, frankly, you know, in Gaza and Israel and Ukraine and Sudan and so many other places, there's so much. Certainly, my social media feed and the news is so problematic. And this is a story of the things that unite us. Um, yeah. And so it's it's you know it feels like every time every day when I'm working on it, it's like a palate cleanse. It's let's focus on on the good things about people and remember that we can, you know, if, if somebody from India, who's actually, he was an untouchable in India from a very remote place can have a meaningful, long lasting love with a woman from a rural Swedish village, you know, we can all get along. That's such a beautiful message and we can't wait to see it. So we'll also be on the lookout for that. I'm sure it'll take a little bit of time, but in the meantime, we can read the book. That's a beautiful message. And I really appreciate all of your time, Orlando, everybody, Orlando von Einzendel. Please look up his work. We will be sharing some of more of his work and please look out for the walk. I really appreciate all of your time and all of your work. Oh, Lida, it's been really lovely and great to talk to you today. Thanks for your time and thanks for having me on Belongings. Thank you. I love speaking with Orlando. He's such an extraordinary human being and so inspiring. And next up, I speak with Asil, the young Syrian refugee girl who lives in Rayhanle. I caught up with her at Kerem House to talk about her experience and role in the film The Walk, where she represents Little Amal. She's such a great, fun little girl, and also she's a star in the making. So today I'm very excited to have Asil with us here, talking to us from Karam House Rehanle. Asil is one of the stars, or Asil is the star of the upcoming film, The Walk, and we're going to be talking about her experience filming The Walk today. I'm very excited to speak with her. My first question to you is, what is home to you? My dream home in the future would be a big villa. I would have a red car and I would have an iPhone and I would be living with my grandmother. Is home located anywhere specific? Yes, in Dubai. So before we started, you drew a map of this dream home. Can you tell us more about this home and what you drew? It's the villa and here is my car. There's also a pool. And there are clouds in the sky, but the sun is still shining. It looks like you have big dreams. So what grade are you in today? I was in sixth grade, but I graduated to the seventh grade now. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. You go to a Turkish school here in Dayhanle? Yes. And how do you like school? Is it difficult? No, not at all. It's really nice and I have a lot of friends at school. Nice. I know you came from Syria to Rayhanle, and you have your sisters with you. Do you feel like Rayhanle and Turkey are your home? Do you feel like you belong here? Yes, I do. That's great. So I want to shift and talk about your experience filming The Walk. How did you feel when you heard about the opportunity? They did an interview with me. I started to talk to them about my life, and they told me I looked like and had a story just like them all. So I started working on the film, and the result was really nice. And when you heard about this girl named Amal, what did you feel about her? How did you connect with her? I thought she was really beautiful. And I thought the experience would be really beautiful. So I went for it. So you saw photos of Amal? I did. She was pretty. So Amal is on a journey, the walk across the world. What do you think about that? I would love to be in her shoes and be able to visit all the places she's going, so I felt connected to her even more. So in a way, you felt that you too were visiting these places? Yes. In the film, I noticed that you got to be creative with cool drawings and handwritten letters. Was that actually you who drew those pictures? Yes, that was me. And the notes as well? Yes, that was all me. I made a book that you can see at the end. I put my photos on it and photos of my sisters on it. I wrote a note on it and made it perfect for the scene. These details that you put on, it sounds like you tried to really inject part of you, personally, into the character and film. Tell us about the filming process itself. 
How is it like being around all those people in the cameras? When they came, I was really happy. I even told my grandmother that I really liked to be in front of the camera. And everyone that came and was a part of the team was so nice. It made the experience even better. What was it about being in front of the camera that you liked? I like to take photos and be in front of the camera and see the results. I do that on TikTok and YouTube so doing it on an actual movie was so cool. I liked being the star and filming with new people I just met. I like meeting new people and this experience gave me that. So when you were working on the walk, you felt like a star. Yes, I did. I felt that I wanted to be in this film and I wanted it to be the best film ever made. So I did everything I could to make it that. Every time the director would tell me to do something, I would give it 100%. What was your favorite scene to film? The ocean scene. Tell us about the ocean scene then. It was my sister Linda and I. We put those boats that we made in the water and watched them float. Then we started playing by the waves together. It was my sister and me together in the scene, and I really liked it. So you like the ocean? I saw that there were other scenes at the amusement park. Did you enjoy those? So when you were there, you were having fun? But the scenes actually wanted you to be sad. So how did you pretend to be sad when you're actually having a lot of fun at an amusement park? They told me to ride on the swinging pirate ship, and I'm afraid of heights. So it was easy to look sad because I wanted that ride to end. It sounds scary. It was. So when you think about the walk film being released all around the world and people seeing you as the personification of little Amal, You're basically representing all Syrian children in the world. What message would you like to have for the people who watch the film? First, I would thank them for taking the time to see the film. Then I would thank people who made this film be seen all around the world. I would tell them that I'm happy that everyone is seeing me in this role. It's important. There are some Syrian children living in tents now. I wish that they can leave and live in a safe and nice place. I want everyone to be in a better place. What are your plans for the future, Asil? Do you want to keep working in film or do you have other goals? I like filming YouTube videos, so I want to do that. I also like making TikToks. Do you have plans to go to university? What do you want to study? I want to go to a police academy and become a police officer because when people have problems like theft or something bad, they go to the police and the police find the bad guys and put them in prison. Police always solve people's problems and make them feel safe. So I have some rapid-fire questions for you. You can answer these in one word. The first is, what does home mean to you? I look towards my home in the future. I will go to university and get married and live in a home that is just how I want it to be. And is there a certain feeling you want in this home? Yes. I want to feel safe with my sisters and grandmother. So it sounds like family is really important to you. So home is family. Okay, next question. What is your favorite food? Pizza. That's great because we're actually having a pizza party at Kerem House today. Next question is, what do you like to do in your free time? I like to draw. I like to sing. I like to play games on the phone. Very cool. Well, do you have any questions for me? How did you come here from the U.S.? I came on a plane. I live in a city called Chicago. So I took a plane to Istanbul. It took about 10 hours. Then I take another flight from Istanbul to Rehanli. And how did you feel when you arrived in Rehanli? I always enjoy coming to Rehanli, of course. I've been coming here for about 11 years now. When I come here, I feel like it's the closest I can get to my hometown in Syria. I'm from Aleppo, by the way. So when I come here, I feel like I'm coming home, especially being at Kerem House. I feel like this is my second home. I love its energy and the talented and bright youth, like yourself, who really make me feel like I belong here. I'm glad you feel that. 
Me too. I'm really happy that you were able to have this experience to represent little Amal to the world. I'm sure when people see the film, they'll see that Amal is not a completely made-up character. She represents all Syrian children everywhere. Thank you, Asil. Thank you. Bye, Asil. Bye. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode researched by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.